Father, we are grateful for a new day, grateful for the opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus our Lord, and, and not just in some sort of re- remote way, but as we've already been reminded, as those who are sharers in Him. And Father, we do often struggle to live moment by moment according to that truth, to really live as those uh, who have died and whose lives are hidden in the Messiah, in you. And to be bound together in that sort of a way in our hearts, in our affections, in our thoughts, in the priorities of life. Father, your church is very, very precious to you. It is the fullness of the Messiah who fills all in all. And I pray that with each day and and as we continue to live and grow in this life in Christ, that your church would become all the more precious to us. We pray you'll bless our time together, that you will help our thinking, help our consideration, that you will instruct us, that you will encourage us, that you will build us up, And that, Father, uh, this time together today will bear good fruit, not just in this day, but, but for all of eternity. Use this time to bind us together. Use this time to bind us more closely to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last time we were together, we talked about the Cain and Abel episode as, as kind of providing the transition for us into the post-fall world, if you will. It gave us an insight into how uh, the human relationship with God had changed. As you see these two men and their their different uh, approaches to worship, the significance of that, and and then the text moves very very quickly from that episode uh, to these next two high points as it's moving us towards uh, the Abraham episode which then lays the foundation for uh, the balance of the book of of Genesis. But the two pieces that I wanted us to consider today um, are the episodes of the flood and then the Tower of Babel. And they're they're tightly connected uh, in ways that hopefully we'll see today. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down into the details particularly with respect to the flood. There are all kinds of questions people tend to want to ask. How could, where'd they get all the wood to build this boat in the middle of the desert? How'd they get all these animals on the ark? Uh, you know, those sorts of questions. But to really say, what does the text want us to understand? What is the point that it's trying to make? Uh, what are the big takeaways that we should, uh, that we should take from that episode? So in the notes, um, I, I note that what, what we see coming out of the Cain and Abel episode, remember again, the human mandate was be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And in that way, the knowledge of God, the presence of God, uh, the wisdom, the love of God would fill the world. God would, in a sense, make the earth sacred space by his image children flooding the earth with their presence. And that's kind of the big idea that comes out of the creation account. And you see uh, in Genesis 5 and moving forward that human beings are filling the earth. But they're filling the earth in a perverse sort of way. 
And so in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, being that he is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And so man in now a corrupted image, he is still the image of God, but he is now corrupted as the image bearers filling the earth. And the text is saying that God determined in that circumstance to uh, address that problem by a great work of judgment and purging and renewal. And so God has already promised in Genesis 3.15 that a descendant of Eve in some sense will be the one who will overcome the serpent and his works and the one through whom by implication death will be overcome and life will be restored. So, so Adam's naming of Eve, his, and again names in, in the scripture refer to something about the person or the person's role. They're not just arbitrary names, uh, you know, identifications as it is in our culture. So Eve is named Eve because she is to be the mother of all the living. Life will be restored through her. So the flood is presupposing that promise of God that came in Eden, but it's also building upon it. And this is the way the scripture tells its story. It, it, it establishes something and there's an anticipation of that thing being realized. Something will happen, a circumstance, a person, whatever. There's movement in the story that builds out or fleshes out what it is that God has promised and gives greater insight and is a kind of fulfillment and yet doesn't ultimately bring the fulfillment. It's that image I've spoken of before of, of the way a painter will paint a painting. Each brushstroke presupposes what's already on the canvas and adds to that. But it's not until you get to the finished painting that you actually see where this is going. But the way that the biblical story carries itself along is in that way. You have an anticipation of fulfillment, a development of that idea, a kind of fulfillment, but not an ultimate fulfillment. So there's now the projection into the next level, the next stage of fulfillment. And that's what we see with the flood. It is a kind of fulfillment of what was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden, but not an ultimate fulfillment. But it has a creation-wide significance. It has uh, ultimately a, uh, a significance with respect to the curse that's come upon the whole creation. And that's the primary reason for the universal language. And I don't want to belabor this, but uh, you know, obviously people argue back and forth. Was it a global flood? Was it a local flood? How do we know? Um, you know, and trying to uh, uh, figure out that sort of an answer. And really what the text wants us to focus on is the fact that this is an event that has global significance. It pertains to the whole of this creation that sits underneath the curse. At the same time, even in the identifying of Noah as the instrument in that work, you see that this renewal, this cataclysm, this washing, this purging, this destruction is itself non-ultimate. If you look at the end of chapter 6, 
And this is in the context of the, the genealogy of Adam, which ultimately leads to Noah, or the end of chapter 5, rather, verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And he called his son Noah, saying, this one shall give us... It's not so much the idea of, of rest as it is relief or consolation, comfort from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Remember, the curse was you will now have to work the earth and it will fight against you. Thorns and thistles it will yield, and it's by the sweat of your brow by, by your toilsome labor, that you will eke out a living from the earth. It will fight you at every stage. And that enmity will ultimately take your life. It will wear you out and consume you. And your body will then be consumed in the ground. And this is referring back to that. So somehow this man Noah is going to give a kind of relief in the context of the curse. So already we see this isn't going to be an ultimate resolution, but developing an understanding of how it is that God would resolve this when the time comes. So this has a creation-wide significance, the flood, but it also is non-ultimate. Noah would bring relief and comfort within the context of the curse. The other thing that catches people's attention is the text makes much of Noah's righteousness, And I've even heard people say, oh, so Noah must have been a sinless man because he's stated to be righteous. Well, so he wasn't subject to the the fall. He wasn't subject to, uh, you know, uh, original sin from Adam or whatever. And that's really not the point that the text wants you to see. But if you look at these these references in chapter 6, as we keep reading, it says, Uh, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So as humans are spreading across the earth, they are spreading their own perversion across the earth, not the reflection of God as image bearers. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. There's a regret And he grieved in his heart, and he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then as you you look in chapter 7, it says, uh, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. And so the issue is not sinless perfection, but uniqueness. The text wants you to see that the whole world is filled with, with human beings who are unified with a common perversion. And in the midst of that is one man who stands out, who finds favor with God. And the text says that he walked with God hearkens you back to the garden, right? God walking in the midst of the garden. So here, Noah is identified as a man who still retains a kind of authentic communion with God in some sense. 
It's not sinless perfection in the way that we want to think of it, but a uniqueness in that in Noah is preserved a sense of man in his authenticity, man walking with God. So Noah's righteousness and therefore even his election, his being chosen by God for this role, has a typological significance. What do I mean by that? Noah is going to be seen to be a new Adam. The human race will come forth from him, right? The human race will come forth from him. And also the instruction will come to him and his sons and their wives, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This is to be a a new creation in a sense, He will be a new Adam, the source of deliverance from death, and so a prototype of this promised seed. So the flood comes, it does its work, but you see the continuance of sin and the curse still after the flood. If you look even at 821... And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and beasts and cattle and every swarming thing that swarms on the thing uh, on the earth of all mankind. Or I'm sorry, chapter 8, 821. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. This is after the flood. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again. Now, unfortunately, the NES says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. But it's a different word than was used before for the cursing of the ground, the cursing of the serpent. This term has to do with treating in a light or in a non-esteeming way. And the point is that by, by this flood, this destruction of God's good creation that he loved, it was a kind of treating it lightly or treating it with disdain. And it, he's saying, I will never again do that. I will never again treat the creation in this way. On account of man, even though the intent of his heart is evil from his youth. So the curse continues on, but it will but this destruction will never happen in this way again. The other thing that we see is that when Noah and his his family come off of the ark, the first thing they do is build an altar. This is the first time the idea of an altar is seen in the scripture. There's nothing about an altar in Cain and Abel's worship. But the point of an altar and these offerings to God is that sacred space, in the way that we saw it, this inherent, intrinsic, intimate communion with God has not been restored through the flood. So as I say in in boldface on page one, sacred space, the realm of divine human encounter still continues even after the flood to be a temporal and I would say a spatial and a symbolic phenomenon. Altars speak to that. A place, a site, a circumstance in which people will go to encounter God. So the fundamental problem of human alienation and human estrangement has not been addressed. But we have a a deeper insight into what it is that God intends for the creation and how he will do this work in relation to this seed who would come. And, And the Noahic covenant, as we call it, helps us to kind of bound all of this and 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 concentrate or or pull together its significance. 
the covenant first pertains to Noah as the one that God sets apart, God identifies and sets apart for this purging, judging, renewing work and and the work of a new Adam in a new world. Uh, But also, it's a covenant that's with the whole creation. It's not just with Noah. It's initially, in a sense, expressed to Noah. But after the flood, God says, this covenant is with the whole earth. It's with the whole created order. Perpetuity, blessing, flourishing. Again, if you look at verse 22 of chapter 8, while earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. I will never treat the earth with the disdain that I did before in this thing called the flood. So this renewed or this washed creation, God binds to himself with the promise of perpetuity and blessing. And then that leads us into the next section, dealing with the Tower of Babel. And very quickly now we see um, the generations. I mentioned before, Genesis is partitioned along these ten generation sections. These are the generations of We had the generations of Adam. Now we have the generations of Noah's sons. And then ultimately the generation of uh, Shem, which leads us to Terah, which leads us to Abraham. But in the unfolding of the descendants, the generations of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we come into chapter 10, And we see now the introduction of different nations, different languages, different groups. If you read through chapter 10, um, see if I can find a couple places here where it's stated in this way. It begins with, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. Then you have in verse 20, these are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Verse 31, these are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. And then in 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So then in chapter 11, we see this thing, the the episode that's the Tower of Babel. And one of the things that's important to note is that the text is, in a sense, out of chronology. It's anachronistic. In other words, in chapter 10, if you've been following Genesis, it's like, what is a nation? We haven't heard anything about nations. Now all of a sudden we see nations, families, groups, languages. Where did that come from? So chapter 10 catches our attention by introducing something foreign in the history of the human race, something new. And it should make us say, well, where did that come from? The Tower of Babel episode tells us where it came from. So chapter 11, then, the first part of it is the answer to the 
generation sections of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you're, that's hinted at by the last verse of chapter 10. Out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Then chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. You see, you're going backwards. You're going backwards. Now chapter 11 is going to tell us how we got to what we see in chapter 10. And I put as just a little footnote in the, in the notes that this list of families, and I'm not going through all of that, and, and tribes and peoples in chapter 10 are really according to an Israelite reckoning. These are nations that the ancient Israelites would have recognized, even as they're centered in the Canaanite people that they would come to dispossess, right? But Israel itself is not mentioned. We don't know yet where Israel came from. Israel isn't mentioned among all these families and peoples and tribes and nations that are given in chapter 10. But all of those are given in Israelite terms. So these are the little clues that the text wants us to catch as we're reading through that keeps us saying, okay, well, where's this going to come from? Where does this, how did this happen? Where is this going? So that leads us then into the Tower of Babel episode. And as I say in point number one, Noah's descendants were greatly multiplying in the earth. And yet, that multitude remained one people united by a common language, even a common culture in a certain sense. So we find out through this Babel episode how we got to all of these nations and peoples and languages that we see in chapter 10. But at this point, then, where chapter 11 picks up, mankind yet remains a unified people. And that solidarity is the context for this thing that we call the Babel episode. So the text says, as, they, as it came about as they journeyed east, this is chapter 11, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top is into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, they were already beginning to distribute some, right? I mean, men were multiplying, but they were trying to remain together. But this scattering idea is, is, again, God had said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But there's this intent, in a sense, to fill the earth with a kind of solidarity, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. This is the idea of a ziggurat, and we'll talk about that, which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. This is what they have begun to do. And and if they are allowed to continue, nothing of which they purpose will be withheld from them. So let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, 
because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Then we move into the generations of Shem, which will lead us to Abraham. So God creates, the text wants you to see, he, he identifies a man and a woman. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They say, we will remain together. God scatters them, but then will bring them back together in Abram. So you have this dynamic of of human intent as it sets itself alongside of God's purpose. But what you see here then is this intent um, to build a ziggurat. And in other words, this city is like a sacred site and the ziggurat would have been connected to the city. And if you've seen ziggurats, they're, they're like, like a pyramid almost, but they have steps that go up them. And the idea is that the, that staircase, as it were, becomes a point of encounter for the deity to come down. We often think this is the way they could climb up to heaven, but it's more the idea of, the, uh, of a way for the deity to come and be with them and commune with them in this city that they have built to make a name for themselves. That's the basic idea of taking place here. And, and if you've looked back, um, and hopefully you've read these sections before, but in Noah's blessing of his sons, you, you see that God has said that through uh, Shem, in verse 26 of chapter 9, Noah says, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. He's the God of Shem. Shem is the Hebrew word that means name. And Shem is the one who's identified, even at this point, as the one of Noah's sons who will be the focal point of God's purposes. Let Japheth dwell in the the tents of Shem. Japheth goes on to represent what we would call, for the most part, the Gentile peoples, the nations. And Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem, but God is the God of Shem. So Japheth's connection with Yahweh will be through his connection with Shem. And that will become important in the way the story plays itself out down the line. Shem becomes Abram, becomes Israel as the point of God's encounter, God's interaction in the world. As the nations come to know God, they do in and through Israel. They do in and through Shem. So God will make a name for Shem. But now you have the unified human race determining to make a name for itself. So this compulsion to continue to encounter God continues, but in the context of the curse, in the context of alienation, in the context of autonomy. But now we've moved from Cain's pseudo-worship to the unified human race defined by every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts is only evil continually. The way in which man in that state seeks to encounter God. So the city and its sacred ziggurat signified mankind's attempt to resolve its own exile from God's garden by constructing a new dwelling sanctuary for unified human rule. 
a new shalomic Eden from which mankind, remember shalom is the idea of harm, harmony and unity, all things dwelling and existing in perfect harmonious intimacy. And the human race is seeing itself in that way. We will come together. We will do this. We can build this. A new shalomic Eden from which mankind, in its own sense of harmonious solidarity, could manifest and exercise human dominion, but as independent and self-reliant. So the, this tower that extends into heaven is man's unified effort to make provision for God to return to them and dwell with them in the new city sanctuary, the new Eden that they have constructed. They're making provision for him to come and be with them. And the text says God did come down, right? He does come down to them. But he comes down to overthrow their designs, not fulfill them. But he does come down. They say, come, let us build, come, let us build. And God says, come, let us go down. See the kind of the play on the idea there. So he's going to continue to interact with his estranged image bearers, but on his own terms and according to his own initiative and designs, not theirs. And so what he does is he scatters mankind. He, he crushes this hubris and this sense that we can all come together. And then if we come together, we can achieve whatever we want. And human beings continue to try to do that, right? The crushing of nationalism, the, the, the aims of globalism, even the United Nations coming out of World War II, right, was an attempt, if we can just all come together and be one, then nothing will be impossible for us. We can banish this enmity. We, we can, in a sense, overcome the curse of alienation and estrangement even from one another, through our own means. And so what God did was effectively ratify what he had put in place by making them unable to communicate with each other, by scattering them. Cultures are different. Languages are different. Nations are different. And so he didn't do anything except for, in a certain sense, testify to and, and harden in place the condition of estrangement human alienation that already existed. So the Babel episode then represents exiled mankind's attempt to restore sacred space. And in that way, make a name for themselves, but in contradistinction to God making a name for man in accordance with his own purposes and his own pledge in Eden. God would make a name for man God would, would make man become man indeed. But you have a human race unified in its common sense that it can accomplish that itself. God's intent was to make a name for man. In other words, this idea of making a name is establishing the truth of man, causing man to be man indeed, to be man in truth. God would accomplish that by having his image son fill the earth with his presence and his wise and loving rule. That's what we see in the creation account. That was God's design. That's how he would make a name for man. Glorifying man by having man being the glory of God in the world. 
But Babel represents man seeking to make a name for himself as man by means of human solidarity and human glory working contra God's designs. So it's a continuation of Cain's self-serving worship, his pseudo-worship. Human worship in the context of the fall seeks to draw God near but out of self-interest. We talked about that the whole thing of religion is magic. Finding ways to appeal to and attract and make amenable deities and powers and forces for the sake of achieving our own agenda. And the religion of Christianity very much operates in the same way. The religion of Christianity. But we see that same sort of, of, of skewed or perverse um, uh, compulsion to still encounter God, to still interact, to still worship. We see that coming uh, in, in kind of a a very uh, concentrated, global, human-wide way at Babel. And the outcome of Cain's worship was what? Scattering. God said he will be a wanderer on the earth. A wanderer. Scattered, dislocated, alienated. Cain said, whoever finds me will kill me. And God said, no, I'll see to it that they don't. That becomes your torture, is that that your life will be preserved, right? So what we see now happening at Babel is the same outcome from the same sort of pseudo-self-serving, self-aggrandizing worship. The outcome of what I'm calling here anti-shalom. This is near the bottom of page two. Anti-shalom. If shalom is the harmonious intimacy of all things operating in that kind of of, uh, harmonious interaction and intended interdependence and interrelationship. Anti-shalom is scattering, fragmenting, dissolving, creating discord, disunity. And that's what we see here. In scattering, disunity, and disorder, the human race would henceforth forever be disunified, at odds, conflict. And we all know the history of the world, if you've studied world history, the history of the world is the history of conflict. What, what has driven even the movement of nations and the way empires have moved and even the development of technology and medicine, it's all been what underlies it is human conflict. War. So rather than recovering sacred space, human solidarity only further dismantled it. But God would accomplish what mankind could not. He would restore creational shalom in and through his chosen man. It would come through man, but not in the way, not even through uh, the unifying of the human race in that sort of way. And my closing statement is that this chosen man would bring a new unity to mankind. And this kind of leads, in my mind, into where I want to go with the table as we think about the table. This one would bring a new unity to mankind, not of the natural sorts of unity that human beings envision and human beings aspire to, but a new ontological unity in the spirit. 
if you think of every possible thing that can unify human beings, every kind of human unity that people aspire to at the level of families or the workplace or communities or nations, the ways in which people try to build unity and harmony and peace, all of that is natural and exists under the sun, and none of that is the unity that God was promising. As Mark mentioned earlier, the Ephesians 4, unity is the unity of the Spirit, right? One faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Messiah, one God and Father. So this desire of human beings to say, if we can come together, we can solve our problems. If we can just come together and stop fighting. I'd like to teach the world to sing and give everybody a Coke, right? Or, you know, Woodstock or whatever. It if we just can start loving one another, we can solve all of these problems. Well, even human love is itself just an expression of the intrinsic enmity that exists. It's just self-serving, right? It's self-referential. But the quest for unity is not wrong. It's what God has created us for. But already Genesis wants us to see that, that what it is that human beings long for, God himself will accomplish. And we don't yet know that it's going to be this kind of unity that I mentioned here, uh, but it will become clear before too long. And so even um, just for the sake of our thinking, and then I think Mark's going to do a song, but coming back to John's gospel in chapter 17, as I've said so many times, you have Jesus through this upper room episode trying to help his disciples to understand the significance and the outcome of what they're going to experience the next day. This horrific crucifixion that they don't even have a category for and is going to be so overwhelming and so discouraging and bring them to despair. He wants them to be able to see that through a different set of eyes. He wants them to understand what it's going to accomplish. And even as he tells them, you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I do, I'll come and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And then he goes on to say, what that looks like is I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in my spirit. I will send the spirit. And the spirit in that day will cause you to understand that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. So that then you also will be in us. And we will come and we will make our place with you. That's the place he's going to prepare. This is not going to be the end of the story. My death is not going to be the end. It's going to be a new beginning. And it's going to bring a new kind of unity that you can't even imagine now. Because as I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, so you will be in us. And this is John 17, what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. And this is where I'll end. But he prays for the sake of the disciples that are there with him, that they will hear and they will, through his prayer, again, come to a better understanding of what it is that his death is going to be all about, what it's going to accomplish, what its ultimate end is. And so he says, 
It is for their sakes that I sanctify myself. I consecrate myself, Father, to this great work. It's for their sakes that they themselves also may be consecrated in the truth. And I don't ask only on behalf of them, but for all those who will believe in me through their testimony to these things, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also should be in us, that the world will then believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as you and I are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. That's what he wants them to understand by this brutal death that they're going to see the next day that seems like the triumph of the powers and the principalities but is God's triumph. And the table is the way in which, the primary way in which we as Christians testify to this essential unity. A new kind of unity, and that's what comes out of the Babel thing. Human beings are always seeking unity of some sort. But they can never attain it because the unity that is true unity is that which is in the spirit. That which is in the spirit. Well, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll sing, and then we'll partake in the table. Father, again, I, I pray that you would, even in this very kind of brief and superficial treatment of um, these episodes, I pray that you would capture our hearts and our minds with the fundamental truths that, are, that we need to take away and that we need to be enriched by and we need to be transformed by. And it's not that the details are irrelevant, but Father, I pray that we would never miss uh, the forest for the trees, but that you would help us to see and to understand, to grasp the things that are needful, the things that cause us to see evermore your glory that is in the face of Christ. So bless us as we continue our worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.